As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, as I always say, the world-famous home of the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly and I'm joined on the pod today by Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook. Charlie, at the end of our last podcast, we got into a debate about whether the Brighton game was must-win for Spurs. And um, I I suppose it's it's fair to say, looking back on it now, with the the, uh, hindsight of a few days, it's just as well it wasn't a must-win game for Spurs, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was making case it wasn't because I thought their rivals aren't going to put enough pressure on between the end of the season. And Arsenal lost, obviously. I mean, United, it, it feels like a sort of like someone's added up the numbers wrong when they've done the league table. It feels like a trick of the mind that United are only three points behind Tottenham because of how weird and ropey their season's been. But there they are. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a slip-up Spurs just about could afford as long as they don't have... Too many more like that. I think I think they've given themselves with the run they went on um, a bit of wiggle room. But I don't, that's not to say it wasn't hugely disappointing. It felt a little bit like maybe it had been coming as well. Just with the not not on a you know Spurs have done so many things brilliantly over the last few weeks. The only thing you might say is that they have been fairly sluggish in the first halves of games. So the Newcastle game, they were very lucky not to go in behind. Obviously, they, they've conceded and then scored just before half-time. It was a poor first half. Villa, as we spoke about, they got battered in the first half despite scoring early and being ahead. And then here, it was, it, was a, it was a dreadful first half. But whereas in those two games, they were able to flick the switch and turn it on, they they just couldn't uh, in the second half. They ne- they just never got going all game. And that's what, that's what I mean, I, I was appalled by the performance, I'll be frank with you. And we won't go into it in depth because it now seems like a distant, a distant memory. I was appalled by the whole thing. And not because it was like Burnley or Southampton three months ago, but because it was like the first half against Aston Villa. And there are times mm. when Spurs just cannot seem to get the ball forward. And you know the, the Kelly dictum, if you start slow, you'll lose at Tottenham. And of course, they start... Po- I got the impression they thought it was going to be a stroll in the sunshine against a Brighton team that doesn't have a bad player from 1 to mm. 11. 
Um, I can explain to you uh, the Manchester United conundrum, why it appears to be a trick of the light. It's because Spurs and Arsenal have lost 11 games each with half uh, a dozen games to go in the season. And when we talk about, and I've heard, and I'm not picking on you here, talk about the quality of the top four this season, I don't agree at all. I think Spurs and Arsenal are bang average teams, that was, uh, give or take. If I may and, defend myself, hmm. Danny, that was truer when I said it. It's obviously since okay. become a lot less true since I said it because yeah, someone's going to qualify for the champion for the Champions League, but about a dozen defeats on the books. Well, actually, don't. In a actually season. don't. Danny, if you read Charlie's piece about Mourinho today, he Which breaks down... To talk, yeah, I know, yeah. but this, this is relevant mm. to what we're talking about now. He breaks yeah. down statistically how um, how Tottenham under Conte have performed. Tottenham's level of performance under Conte is really high. It's really, really high. And so when I said the other week that Tottenham have been playing like an 80-point team, I think that is more or less true, even though they were really bad on Saturday. Uh, I guess the bigger question really, and this is what we need to find out, is was the failings in the performance on Saturday, was that a one-off born of complacency or Brighton being surprisingly good or whatever else? Or does it point to any sort of deep-rooted issues which might be more problematic over the rest of the run-in? And I think there are those issues. And, and they, and it's whether they can overcome them. I mean, you know, a lot of the things we saw, so the sluggish first half, and it's important, you know, we shouldn't overreact and say, oh, you know, Spurs are bad now. It's, it's one game, but it wasn't totally in isolation. We, we know as well that when they come against teams who are well-organised enough to sit deep and not get drawn out, I mean, that was the key difference. And we talked about this before, how other teams, even like West David Moyes' West Ham, who we know are incredibly well-coached, they Spurs found a way to draw them out. That didn't really happen against Brighton on Saturday. And Brighton, really, I mean, they... Conte, you, in his press conference, he talked about how they closed the space. I think he used the expression five times in, not, in a not very long press conference and then talked about it in relation to Spurs, how they didn't close the space well. So that was clearly his idea. And we have seen teams who, when they do that, when they deny Tottenham space, when they dominate the midfield, which, I mean... Basuma, every time I see him, he looks absolutely amazing. And, and I said to Andy Naylor, who covers Brighton, and he, he was sat next to me, I said, is this skewed by the fact that I only really see Basuma again? I only really see Brighton when they play against the bigger teams. And is he one of these players who turns it on a bit for those games, but lacks consistency? And Andy said, to be fair to me, has this season been pretty consistent? He's had a bit of a dip, but then the whole team has. But I mean, I know there are complications with Basuma which we probably don't have time to get into or mm-hmm. I certainly don't have the knowledge to but just purely from a playing perspective I, I always think he's an incredibly good player and I think he's only got a year left at the end of his uh, on his contract at the end of this season so I mean t- yeah very, very interesting player the interesting thing I don't know if you saw match of the day but um, Lewis Dunk was interviewed on it and he, he kind of joked afterwards that Tottenham sorry that Brighton had stopped the service into Harry Kane and then did a sort of nervous giggle as if he, and they joked in the studio that he might have given away too much. And they showed on their clips how well, how well Brighton did at stopping Davis and Romero, especially from moving the ball forward to Kane and also Benton Kerr. Now, you know, anyone who's watched Tottenham play well knows that it all really starts, it often starts with Romero firing the ball into Kane. But what was interesting to me about that was that we've kind of got this idea in our heads that the way to stop Spurs is just to if you sit back and don't come out, then you can, you know, you can make it difficult for Spurs to get around to you. But actually, Brighton had more, judging by the stats they showed up in match of the day, Brighton had more good possession than Tottenham did. Then I think basically double as many 
double the number of passes into the, into the opposition half that Spurs had, double the number of passes into the final third. So clearly they managed to play football as well as pressing Tottenham in the right places, as well as stopping Tottenham from creating any chances, which is amazing, really, at Spurs. It's very difficult to get my head around how this team only won three games in six months. Look, mm. the, the the two things I'll say, uh, one of them is strategic and the other one I hope it was just a, a temporary blip. The strategic thing is I still struggle at times to see what how Spurs are trying to get the ball forward. When it's going well, you can see the, the wing-backs doing their thing and all the rest of it, but they don't play the ball forward particularly well out of midfield. And on the day, you know, you can measure it. Hoiberg was Spurs' best player on the day. That is a sign that team is not playing well when the essentially the sticking midfielder is the one who you actually say, okay, well, he's at least doing his bit. The second thing is... He also spent a lot... He spent, sorry to interrupt mm. there. He also, my, my recurring image of that game is him on the ball taking about 12 touches, sort of going around in circles because, and sort of asking for no move and asking for movement. Because part wasn't two of this is that the front three had a horrible day. Now, some of this is down to, as you say, their lines getting cut off, but also they individually, you know, Kane miscontrolled the ball, I think, four or five times uh, in a way that we've not become used to. Kulusevsky was peripheral, niggly, and was, you know, let's be truthful, lucky not to get a red card. Decisions like that are when you think referees, I don't know what it is. It's almost, and I know this is such a cliche, like they've never played the game, but sometimes it's almost just like a basic human understanding. I mean, what what is Kulusevsky doing there if not <laughs> lashing out in frustration? <laughs> but it's just so obvious, the motivation. I find decisions like that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure people will be saying, but, you know, Brighton should have had a man sent off as well, which they should have done. It's still just a, a, a baffling decision. Let's not dwell on this because let's try um, to bring some optimism to it and say, oh, let's call it a bad day at the office, though. As I say, with 11 defeats already on the books, the, the office is not always the most productive place, as it turns <laughs> out. Um, that's two full weeks of, uh, that's two full working weeks, more than 11 Yeah, defeats. that's as much holiday as most Americans take in the year, <laughs> you know. Um, let's, let's just hope we got, we, you know, many of you will be listening to this after Tuesday, but Tuesday and Wednesday, it is possible, or indeed probable, Jack, that both Manchester United and Arsenal, and now I've got to talk about Manchester United, just for the, for the sake of everybody's knowledge, for the last few weeks, the producer of this podcast, bless him, has been putting in Spurs' run-in and Arsenal's run-in. Suddenly, we've had to add Manchester United's run-in to it, which is, thankfully, tricky. Um, let's be honest about that. But, Jack, it is perfectly possible that Arsenal and Manchester United could drop points will drop points over the next 48 hours as we're speaking now. And that would put a whole different gloss on that league table. Yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if Man United were to win at Anfield on Tuesday night, given how well... I mean, Liverpool were sensational. I mean, Liverpool have been sensational all season, really, but especially for the last few months. So I'm sure Liverpool win that game against a United team who... Are just you know ultimately a bit of a shambles. Uh, Chelsea Arsenal on the Wednesday. Uh, you'd probably expect Chelsea to win that game, wouldn't you? I mean Arsenal. Uh, it's weird. Arsenal have gone from looking like Potter Spurs fifteen sixteen to they've been so you know the way they've lost three three on the spin. They're starting to look brittle, uh, kind of men- mentally as well, and they're lacking key players. Whereas Chelsea maybe have recovered a bit. So yeah, I. I would expect, or this might be wrong, I would expect those Chelsea and Liverpool to do Tottenham favours over the next two days. What, what I find, just on United, what I find so weird about them is how bad they've been this season and yet 
when you look at the teams around them, they drew with Chelsea in their only meeting. They did the double over Spurs. They've beaten Arsenal in their only meeting and they did the double over West Ham. It's great. I mean, it's it, I, it's very odd that they've done that. And you think, I mean, I guess you could flip it the other way and say if they'd only beaten the, the lesser sides, they'd be doing a lot better. But you think, God, if they hadn't, and a lot of those wins, the teams have come away, the beaten teams have come away being like, how have we just lost that game? You know, Spurs at Old Trafford. You know, it was like, how has that happened? But, and maybe that, you know, that's what Ronaldo, you know, Ronaldo has carried them over the line in a few of those games. They always um, have had a bit of a kind of chameleon tendency over the last few years mm, Man United, in the sense yeah, that they... Yeah, they've had a good record against City. Yeah, like they? They, this season, I mean, both City battered them in both games this season, but certainly back under the Solskjaer, Days they had actually they would beat City quite a few times. Didn't they do the double over them? Yeah, even yeah. at the Etihad, you know, just before COVID, and they had, a, they had quite a few big wins over City. So they have that's that's not the sign of a really good team. But that is something United mm. have done a lot. So I guess that's just carried through into this season. They have every right to be a half decent number of points in the league because of the amount of money they spent on footballers. But I know that just isn't the answer. And of course, anyone who happened to see the game on Monday night between uh, and no reason why you would, between West Bromwich Albion and Nottingham Forest at the city ground, knows that talking about football, we're actually wasting our time here because Jack Colback, after 14 years as a professional footballer, has suddenly discovered that he's Marco Van Basten. Uh, <laughs> anyone who's seen Jack's goal, I mean, he kept his light in under a bushel for 14 years. Um, and, you know, you could have had a billion to one against the kind of goal that he scored. I know it was an accident, but it was an amazing finish. I really, I, I, I have to believe that he meant it. I'm trying to convince myself that he meant it. I never, anytime footballers get those freaks, I always choose to believe, you know, they've got the skill, they've got the nous, they're the ones getting paid to play football. Why wouldn't I believe that they meant it? But it was what I loved of- about it in the studio at halftime was that Neil Warnock was on the side of he meant it, whereas yeah. Glenn Murray was on the side of he didn't mean it. You know, Neil Warnock is a, is a romantic deep down. Yeah. And most and most ex pros, as we know from those programs, are deeply, deeply cynical about the game and can't believe that anything good could ever possibly happen. Let's let's have a break because uh, I want to spend more time in the second half of the podcast. I'm um, talking about Charlie's article marking a year since. Uh, wow, what a year it's been! And talk about water under a bridge uh, since Jose Mourinho was sacked. It both covers both the positives and the negatives. We'll talk about that next year on the View from the Lane. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. It's just 365 days, exactly today as we're speaking here on the podcast, that Spurs got rid of Jose Mourinho, where a turbulent year since was preceded by an equally turbulent period at the club um, as the serial winner, as he gets called, and he's closing in on a European trophy again this season. Let's not forget that. Come on, Leicester. Was it was let go. Charlie, you've written a, a, a long and an in-depth piece about his reign, and it contrasts sharply the negative, dark things that he brought to the club and to the squad and to the players with, your argument is, a kind of prescience about what was going on at Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't think with him it's as... It's not in any way a kind of defence of Mourinho or why the Mourinho era was good. I mean, the Mourinho era was terrible. I think he would admit that. He might, he might His view might diverge on why that happened. And that's kind of what the piece is looking at. I mean, a year on how much has changed and I think it's interesting and Jack and I were talking about this last week about how you know with Manchester United there are quite a lot of things that Mourinho said which at the time were kind of like oh classic Mourinho sour grapes and then actually those issues have continued and you think oh maybe Mourinho wasn't quite so crazy after all now with Spurs it's really interesting because you know one of the premises of the piece is that I think a lot of how we judge a manager is based on what happens after they go and I think the year since has been so strange and so mixed. I mean, you know, clearly the Mason period is, I don't think that's where you sort of judge Jose Mourinho. That was an interim. Then Nuno was obviously a disaster. But, you know, I think Mourinho would, would bracket himself differently to Nuno Espirito Santo. Conte is the interesting one. And I think what is interesting with that is a, a lot of the complaints Mourinho had, Conte has shared. You know, you talk about players who don't have the right mentality. Well, a lot, you know, a, a lot of the players' issues, a lot of the players that Mourinho had issues with, Deli Ali, Tongi and Dombele, Conte moved on at the first opportunity he could. And likewise, Nuno did the same with Musa Sissoko, Serge Aurier. So, you know, and, you know, and Dombele, it is funny because Mourinho was the manager to get the best out of him at Spurs. And, and then all other things, you know, a lot of the way Conte was talking in January, February was very Mourinho-esque. Then in early February, Conte talked about, you know, we need, we need to change the, the, sort, the sort of signings we make. We can't be bringing in people like Brian Hill who aren't ready for the Premier League. Obviously, Mourinho, one of his big beefs was the summer of 2020 when he wanted a centre-back, didn't get it. And, you know, Spurs have completely ripped up their whole recruitment policy since that period. So you can't say Mourinho is a totally isolated voice. This sounds as if I'm kind of defending him. I'm not. It's more just... We, we know his period was a disaster. We know it was terrible. We know a lot of the players had massive issues with him and his training and his methods, which were shown to be outdated. But yeah, it's kind of just reflecting on a year on how much has our view changed. And for a lot of people, it won't have changed at all. They'll just say it was all Mourinho. He was a disastrous appointment. What were we thinking? Let's forget about it. 
you know, for him as well, I don't think it's a period he looks back on especially fondly. But yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, what it tells us about him, what it tells us about modern management. I think there's just, there's a lot to, to get into there. And Jack Charlie's piece, though, uh, well, all of that is true. Um, although I'm always a little, uh, we don't go to the training rounds, but I could tell by the attitudes of some of the players we talked about there that they weren't um, right for a club that's hoping to go places. Um, and it, it is, it is no, you know, we talk about Deli Alley, Tongi and Dombele. I don't know these fellows from Adam, really, because, you know, the distance between modern footballers and even journalists, never mind that members of the public, civilians, is so vast now that I don't know what goes on in these blokes' heads. I don't know what their, their hopes and desires are. I can only judge on the way they actually conduct themselves on a football pitch. Um, so I don't think it's a great achievement to say that's, a, you know, we need a centre-half because that was clear to me and I'm not getting uh, any of Jose Mourinho's money. On the other side of it, Jack, uh, Charlie's piece reiterates the fact that... Uh, that Mourinho, not everywhere and not always, but often and more pertinently recently, he poisons the well at the football clubs he goes to. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. That is what's happened in his last few jobs. If I were to take a kind of Mourinho sympathetic view on that, I would say the issue is that, and this is probably the number one reason why it didn't work out, Mourinho's motivational methods just don't work for young players. You know, they were fantastic in the good old days of JT and Drogba and Carvalho and Lamps and like and you know all the the the, the guys that he had at Inter when it's Schneider and Kivu and Zanetti and Cambiasso and all those guys, Matarats. Yeah, those generations of players. War, yeah. You could mm. go up to them and say, "You were shit today. How come?" And the players would like you know that that generation of players would react well to that and try and prove him wrong the next day. Whereas, Modern players aren't built like that. Like, I really hope I don't sound like, you know, like I'm accusing them of young people of snowflakery or whatever. But this is, you know, this is something you hear time and time and time and time again from people who work inside football. Modern players today, that is players, you know, younger than me and Charlie, players born in the 90s or even the 2000s, they don't respond that well to this kind of prodding. And the the ones that do, like, say, for example, Harry Kane, who is, you know, a millennial who's born in what 1994 not a young player anymore but young within the context of Mourinho's career but he's, he's different quite, from his generation he, isn't he? he is different he's got hmm. this kind of Kane has got that kind of old-fashioned Lampard mentality he really has and he's self-driven Kane's, isn't he yeah, yeah he's self-motivated and I think the big story of Jose's last sort of the second half of Jose's career is that he's gone into clubs where he's had you know some very talented young players whether that's going back to Chelsea where he's got Matter and Oscar and Azard and those guys, or going back to Man United, where he's got Shaw and Rashford and Martial, and again, really, really good players, or really talented players. And he he kind of pokes them with his stick. He does his confrontational leadership. He tells them that they're rubbish. He hammers them in public and in private. And this is what happened again at Tottenham. And it, the players don't like it. And I think that's why it looks so toxic. It's because he's doing so. He's do, he's doing methods that are sort of 10, 15 years out of date. And what's really interesting, and this is something Jack and I have talked about as well, is that he he's kind of miscast as being very strict with his players. You know, you look at the training and fitness and all of that, he's actually more this sort of laissez-faire, I shouldn't have to do everything for you sort of thing, which is a bit out of step now with the micromanagement of modern coaching. And a lot of people will think, well, he's right, you know, these over-pampered you know, players who need everything done for them, whatever happened to them, having a bit of initiative, do they need to be shown how to do absolutely everything? 
but that kind of is the way of it now and and you know that's how academies work and and a lot of again a lot of people think this is a bad thing in football that that academies are churning out these you know off the factory line the these sort of identikit players and there isn't enough inventiveness and intuition but that is sort of the way it's gone and i think a lot of the players were just you know, I know players who were genuinely concerned. I mean, you know, they haven't told me this personally, but my understanding from what I've been told, they were genuinely concerned about their conditioning and things like that because they're so hot on it. But Mourinho, that wasn't, you know, as big a preoccupation for him. We know this about his time at United as well. And so there is this, and it is a really interesting contrast. And people will say, you know, Mourinho, you always go on about Mourinho. A, this is this feels like a opportune moment to do it given the year anniversary, but he just is a really interesting case study. You know, I think that sort of that slight man out of time. I also think, and this and this is what happened to Arsene Wenger, and it's very hard. I think Ferguson's one of the few to have done it. Is when methods have worked incredibly well for you, to 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 be to be big enough and open minded enough to say, wow, okay, these. This just doesn't really work. You're, and rather than thinking they're the problem, you changing like the way Ferguson... You are hitting the nail squarely on the head there, Charlie. And it's true in most facets of life that successful people, the thing that eventually destroys their success is the fact that they believe that what they did 10, 15 years ago worked then, so it must work now. Sometimes it does, but very often it doesn't. And the mm. best and most successful businessmen, businesswomen, managers... Sports coaches are the ones who in, in, embrace each wave of change, whether it's technological, whether it's sports science, whatever it is. And Ferguson's genius was he was always prepared to change. You know, the team got beaten by, I can't remember, some team from Eastern Europe, and he swore to, I think it was McLaren was his assistant manager, we will never play two up front again in Europe. Mm. He never did. They went on to win to win trophies and all the rest of it. Because the problem is, I I... The cliche, the cliche that, um, you know, oh, Zinedine Zidane will have the instant respect of the players only goes so far because sooner or later, young people always think they're being talked down to by people who were successful in their profession 20 years ago. The example that's always given is Alan Ball, the late Alan Ball, who played in England's World Cup winning team and was a very, very average manager. At the end of his tether, when he couldn't get lesser players to be what to do, he would show them his World Cup winner's medal. And there's a danger with Mourinho that he's trying to show, he's always showing you his three trophies and talking about that. If you're a young footballer, you don't care. Big deal. Yeah, that was then. This is now. I've got a play against XYZ player. Erling Haaland is bearing down on me. How do your winning of trophies but bear but help me with this? It doesn't. Well, I do think that was I do think that was part of Daniel Levy's thinking, was that the players, you know, how do we lift the players after Pochettino will bring in someone who is bigger than the club? Ultimately, he's, he's he's a bigger media draw than Tottenham. He's won more than Tottenham. And Tottenham fans might not like to hear that, but that is how it felt. That is how it felt in November 2019. And Levy was in awe of Mourinho. So I think Levy's thinking would have been, if we can bring in Mourinho, he's such a big figure, he'll spark these players into, into being better. Because I don't think Levy really understands the the kind of, the reasons why Mourinho's football is slightly out of date. But the frustrating thing about this, this is, I'm, I'm frustrating from the perspective of why did it go wrong and how might it have gone better, is that the way that Mourinho might have updated his methods would have been with a better, more modern coaching staff, you know, different from the guys that he'd had at Chelsea and Man United, etc. And that's what he did. Like, he didn't bring in, there was no Rui Faria, there was no Silvino Luro. He brought in 
Jao Sacramento is his number two. As someone who's about my age and came in from Lille, he brought in Nuno Santos as goalkeeping coach, Carlos Laline as fitness coach. Formosino was there for a little bit before he left. And the sad, the sad thing is, those guys were an utter disaster. They were a complete disaster. They were unpopular on a personal level, on a professional level. They didn't succeed in getting through to the players. And there is a theory going around that Charlie and I have both heard from different people, which is that maybe, and this is a slightly Jose sympathetic theory, but maybe if he'd just chosen better, better and more respected backroom staff, he might have been able to make a better fist of the Spurs job. But he has to be the star of the show. So you can't be bringing in people who might um, in any way take away from your glittering greatness. True, although you can appoint people who will do the work, the less glamorous but still important work and do it in a more efficient way. And that that you can imagine that dynamic working. And, and having someone talk about this and something Jack and I've both heard as well, you know, having someone to balance him out. And this is the kind of the Jesus Perez-Pochettino dynamic that, worked very well until you know the yeah. the very end but you know you had Perez who was very good at sort of no, recognize you know they were such a team those two we know how close they were and he would sort of sense when Maurizio was a bit unapproachable and would kind of be to players like go through me today lads you know don't don't bother him and vice versa there'd be times where he would be the one who'd have to be a bit strict or whatever whereas uh, Sacramento by all accounts, as well, partly because he was so young, felt that he needed to be an authority figure as well. And so if Mourinho was in a bad mood, he'd be like, yeah, well, I'm so am I. You know, I, I need to sort of be as one. And then you've got not one, but two of your most senior coaches in a horrible mood. You know, and it's, it just adds to this toxicity. But I, I wanted to ask you guys as well, because just thinking, I was thinking about this yesterday in relation to Mourinho, that he, it's now, for, for Guardiola, it's what, 13 years since he won that treble uh, with Barcelona. And I, and I was thinking for Mourinho, he went, you know, it was about 12 years, wasn't it, when Mourinho, Mourinho won the uh, UEFA Cup with Porto mm-hmm. in 2003, which was kind of his breakout moment before the Champions League a year later. And then he won the Premier League with Chelsea in 2015. That was his last league title. So that was a gap of 12 years. And I was just thinking Guardiola is almost at the point at which you start to think, that normally, and Miguel Delaney did a really interesting piece on this about kind of manager, super coaches, shelf lives. And Guardiola is almost already going beyond, I think, what we think, you know, these these managers can stay at the very top four. And I wonder how much we think that's to do with how he's evolved or whether he's just basically cracked it with his one way of doing things. Um, and Klopp as well. You know, Klopp is now, it was 2012, I think, wasn't it? He won uh, the Bundesliga. So he's doing 10 years as well. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how long they can stay at the very top and the extent to which they have to evolve and do evolve. I mean, Klopp, we've seen more of an evolution, I guess, already. Yeah, we have, haven't we? And I don't know with Pep, like it's... it's I don't think it's going to last forever, Pep's dominance of, of the football world. But I yeah, it, I wonder whether it might the stratification of football might actually make it harder because there's fewer... You know, mm. Klopp was obviously at Mainz and then Dortmund, then Liverpool. So, he, you know, that's quite a... A, a clean passage but I think with you know the more that the big clubs get separated from the lower clubs the more different managing a, a very rich club to a fairly rich club becomes which might make it harder actually to for managers to kind of move up through the football ecosystem to the top but yeah like I mean it's quite easy for us to forget who you know that those of us who remember Mourinho as a young manager but he you know he's not a young manager anymore like he started mm. 
he started at Benfica what in two thousand, and he's been yeah. he, he was assisting Bobby Robson and up for another ten years before that. So his you know we we shouldn't necessarily expect his football to be cutting edge. And if you do expect his football to be cutting edge, and you do sack Mauricio Pochettino to appoint him, then I think you're going to get a nasty surprise, which is more or less what Daniel Levy got. I mean, look, I I, I really have got sixty next year. Marie. I've got a total downer on him because of what happened at Spurs, but you know you cannot deny that he was a brilliant uh, coach for. 20 years almost before that. And I'm including even before Porto, uh, one that you over cut, people were saying, oh, you should watch this team and how they're doing this, that and the other. I think the interesting thing about Klopp and Guardiola, and we'll come on to Manchester City in just a second, um, is I suspect that they are both one-offs. If you can have two one-offs at the same time, they are so extraordinarily good at what they do and they are very different things and they have influenced each other. We get that. They're very lucky, Liverpool and Manchester City, to have them. And of course, they are possibly storing up problems, as Miguel was um, was referring to, further down the line, when you have to replace these people. I suppose we should just warm our hands on the fact they're in the Premier League at the same time. And one last thing, that, and I actually think that the phases post the sacking of Mourinho, we talk about Nuno, but of course, it was the effect on the club. The effect on the club was that they went you know, months without a manager. Because they just couldn't think mm. of what to do next. So that's the other phase I think about. But also, what if, and I know that there may have been all kinds of psychological and financial reasons why, they, what if they had left Mourinho in charge for one more game and Spurs won the League Cup final? Mm. Um, and then all this business about me laughing about, you know, um, Bale and Modric getting more, two more trophies to add to the enormous list of ex-Spurs players who've won a trophy since Spurs last won one. I just wonder whether Levy, I thought it was right to get rid of him. I just wonder whether they might have left him that one more opportunity to win the trophy, at least get that monkey off Spurs back. And that's something that Mourinho supporters will point to, is that Spurs is the only club he hasn't won a trophy at uh, since 2002. So maybe they're the problem, not him. I'm not saying that's a view I subscribe to, but you know that 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 is a view. And you know, I think if it was any other manager, <laughs> there'd have been a lot more sympathy for the fact that he he did get them to that final. Um, you know, and most man, I think ninety nine percent of managers would be saying they deserve the chance to manage the team in the final. Let alone a manager who'd won more trophies than the club he was managing. I mean, it's funny Mourinho gets held to a much harsher standard because of all the things he's won. Yeah, but I think that that final was itself the trigger for Mourinho's sacking in the sense that. After that draw with Everton on the Friday night, that two-all draw, it did feel like a bit of a last throw of the dice at the time. Mourinho said that his, you know, he wanted to rest. Mourinho's view, I gather, was that he wanted to rest players for the Southampton game in midweek so that he could then prioritise the Carabao final against Manchester City the next weekend. Whereas the view of Daniel Levy was, well, I know we've got this final coming up, but we still want to try and finish as high as possible in the league. We don't We don't want to give up on the Champions League, never mind the Europa League. And that's why we want you to play your best possible team for Southampton, the Premier League game midweek. And I, I gather that, that that was the kind of the breaking point, really, at which Levy decided to sack to sack Mourinho. So maybe if they hadn't been in the League Cup final, then it wouldn't have been a problem and he might have got the Saints game anyway. And another counterfactual, that League Cup final would normally be at the end of February. It was only when it was because of the COVID pandemic. So, you know, he, he had it been played in February when it should have been, then it wouldn't have had that effect in the way that it did. But Well, yeah. um, as I say, it, it seems almost extraordinary reading your piece, Charlie, that it's only a year since he went because, of course, professional football, but particularly at certain clubs, 
Um, just throw, and we're all so lucky, aren't we, on this podcast that Spurs just keep on throwing stories up into the air with like, like a sort of geezer in a national park or something. But just on the last thing on that contrafactual, I, 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 was, I was delighted when they got rid of him, but I do think he should have been given the final. In retrospect, I think that. I think, and I wonder whether Spurs, to use the parlance of the streets, had shat the bed by getting rid of their manager on the eve of a final. Now, we've been talking about um, Pep Guardiola and... Um, Fantastically interesting stories breaking in the last 24 hours that they, uh, Manchester City, have decided they and agreed a, a, you know, a transfer for Erling Haaland. Um, this has all kinds of knock-ons. For instance, it's another example that the world has completely changed now and that the, the world's best players are not automatically going to go to Spain, which was the truth for you know two decades, really. Here he is going to be at Manchester City. I also think in the discussion we were having before that this is the, possibly... And I, you know, I'll be proved wrong by history or right by history. This is Manchester City's cleverest investment in a long, long time because I think it future-proofs the team for the day when Guardiola is no longer there. They will have a player who they can play a different way if they want to, depending on who gets the manager's gig further down the line, because they can use them as an out and out target, a, you know, a central spear point for their attack. But it also has, a, I think, a Spurs dimension. And I wonder, Jack, assuming that it does go through, and there's no reason to believe it won't now, obviously this changes the triangulation. It's another moving part for Harry Kane. Yeah, so I gather that after, after last summer, City decided that they wouldn't want to go back in for Kane. That really it was... 2021 was their, was their window for trying to sign Kane. Obviously, they had a look at him in 20, they had a, a sort of quick look at 2020 and then tried a little bit harder, but not that hard, as we've discussed many times before mm-hmm. on this podcast, in 2021. But I think, I think the view at City is that by the time of the summer of 2022, Harry Kane would be, let me just double check, tw- uh, turning 29 years yeah. old. And therefore, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't want to throw the money. They wouldn't, they don't want to get involved in another like big long scrap with Daniel Levy about it in public. Uh, they don't want to get asked about it every week. They, you know, they would always much rather have the thing about City is they're happy to pay the money, but they want to get it done early. That's always been the way at City, and that and that's kind of how we knew last year they didn't want Kane that much, you know, because with with Jack Grealish they just went all in and paid the hundred million pounds. With Haaland, it looks like that's what they're going to do this summer. But with Kane, they were never going to do that. So yeah, clearly City's off the table for Kane, as I think it has been since the start of the season. I think his only, I think the only real interest in Kane this summer is going to be for Manchester United. I think United want Kane regardless of who the new manager is, even regardless of the Ronaldo situation. I've got no idea what's going to happen there, but I think United have decided that he's somebody who they really want. Uh, my colleague Laurie Well, who covers United, has written about this. From Kane's own perspective, I mean, United is obviously less attractive than City. I don't think he's, and clearly he's enjoying playing with Conte. That said, I think he'd be, let's say, curious to hear what might be out there. I used to think that he would sign a new contract at the end of this season. I'm now not so sure about that. But ultimately, and this is the only thing, the only thing that matters is this. Dan, there's no chance in hell that Daniel Levy sells him to anyone, but certainly not to Manchester United, and especially not to a United team who finishes below him. So... I would expect Kane to still be at Tottenham for the start of next season. In which case, why wouldn't he sign a new contract? Because that means he'll be heading into his 30s. Well, and, you know, the secure... Maybe maybe football's these days are so wealthy that... And we've seen it increasingly. They're prepared to run down contracts. Because if you're as injury-prone, God forbid, as Harry is, wouldn't you want a contract that takes you into your, into your mid-30s? 
No, I think you keep your options open. Mm-hmm. He, he holds all the power. Why would he? Ha- you know, <laughs> he's already made his mistake there's... once, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, and yes, often what one does in life is they make a mistake and then try and rectify it, and in so doing, make a different mistake. But I think he, he there's not a huge incentive for him to sign. You know, even if he did run down his contract. Mm-hmm. You know, Spurs would still be desperate to yeah. keep him, and I'm sure would offer him a big one as he came to the end of it. Um, you know, and, and you say about injury prone, he is injury prone. I shouldn't have used still... that phrase. He's not coming out of my mouth. I think I think I, I yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is a bit of a misconception because he does he plays so many games every season, and every and then when you throw in the England games. Um, don't don't, don't tell year. me you were, don't tell me when Sanchez uh, the goalkeeper fell on his ankle you weren't thinking oh my god there's him out for the next three the next three months oh, I, was. I, I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking about the yeah the sort of pieces on what Spurs do now how can yeah they, yeah obviously obviously that all runs through your mind yeah but yeah I mean you look at his Premier League appearance since he since the start of 2014-15 34 38 30 37 28 29 35 31 and that's 31 is this season so he you know he's going to get close to 38 um, or 37 he missed the first game didn't he um, but yeah I, I think he'd be mad signing a new contract if he you know if he still has designs on moving uh, obviously if he's absolutely set on staying for life then yeah of course go and sign a massive contract now strike while the iron's well, hot that's, but- that's why I, I mean I don't know how these things work you two are in a much better position to judge just the sit- one or two reports and of course I, I, I read stuff about Kane probably far I'm over reading them but just the idea that he it seems to have been bubbling up. Somebody must have said to somebody, "Oh, he's interested in you know in, in breaking Jimmy Greaves's all-time scoring record for Spurs." That's come up in several reports I've read, presumably from one report being you know retold and retold. But he can do that without signing a new contract, actually. So yeah. you're probably you're mm. probably right. But it, it, I, sorry, the, the the Manchester City thing means that's one door that was open to him, and we're going to have a lot of this because you know Lewandowski wants to move, Mbappe probably going to move, although this. The, the uh, the money that the they're offering him at PSG may change his mind, but uh, it'll be interesting. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say what we don't know. One question mark. This is something we don't know. Is if Kane will do or say anything about his future this summer. So Kane has been mm. since that statement that Kane released at the end of last at the end of the transfer window last summer, saying. I am, you know, I'm committed to staying at Spurs for this, you know, I'm at Spurs for this <laughs> Until the next transfer window. Um, so Kane has, Kane has had many, many opportunities. You know, Kane does an awful lot of media and he could do, if he wanted to do more media, he could do more. He's had many chances to say, you know, I am definitely going to stay at Spurs sure. for, until the end of my contract, for as long as Conte is here, for the rest of my career, however he wants to phrase it. And he, he clearly hasn't done that. Like he's always... As Charlie said, he has always kept his, his options open. So I do wonder if he might say something, do something, give an interview, whatever, at some point to to clarify what his intentions are, because a lot, you know people are slightly in the dark about this. So that that's one curious thing about it. And the other, oh, fucking hell, I forgot what I was going to say. I had something else to say. Well, that was a very else. good curious thing. Yeah, you there did you go. Say. You got one <laughs> thing yeah, out of me. Yeah, come on. Uh, well, what, but what's interesting is that as much as I mean. On one hand, as Jack says, it doesn't really make a difference because Daniel Levy is just not going to sell him this summer. But what it will do, if if Spurs are pipped to the top four, especially by United, then that is going to make it for a very uncomfortable summer because then you've got Conte, will he, won't he go? You've got Kane, will he, won't he agitate for a move? That's going to drag. That would drag on and on and on. What what them finishing the top four would do is that you'd think that would mean Conte stays. 
And that's going to be a, that's going to have a big effect on Harry Kane, given how much he enjoys working with Conte and how much he wants to be at a Champions League club and how much he wants to be working with elite managers. So it does, you know, we've talked about it before, how big and how important this top four race is. And I think that is going to be, that that will shape it's the extent weird. to which Jack and I spend our summer on Kane and Conte saga. It's, it's weird, isn't it? I've spent, all, I've spent the, the last like six months thinking, oh, it's going to be Tottenham versus Arsenal for fourth. You know, what would it mean if Arsenal get there and Tottenham don't, etc.? I hadn't really figured, I hadn't mm. really processed in my head the possibility of Man United coming fourth and Tottenham coming fifth. But... If that were to happen, then that would, you know, like throw an extra complication into the Kane issue, which I hadn't really been counting on. Which is Charles Eccleshare Esquire, that why I thought the Brighton game was must win, because so much hangs <laughs> yeah. on that fourth place. A lot hangs on it, including what miserable summers you two are gonna have if Spurs don't make fourth. Said- <laughs> yeah. The other point to remember here is that Levy it's, the, it's like the connection between the Conte and the Kane situations. Like, as I can see it, and again, this is the sort of prediction that comes wrong, their futures are intertwined in the sense that if Kane were to be sold, I think Conte's position becomes untenable. Mm. I don't see how Conte could accept being at Tottenham if Levy were to sell Kane. So I think that that gives Levy... And given how des- desperate, desperate, desperate Levy is to make the Conte, for, to make the Conte appointment work out, I can't see how Levy can possibly accept Kane leaving because of what it, what it would mean for Conte. Mm. And, I, and, and my sense is that Kane would be, for as long as Conte is there, given the improvements that Tottenham have had, Kane would be, you know, Kane would think, well, yeah, let's, l- let's keep trying with Conte and see how it goes. I, I increasingly think he will run down his contract. I, yeah. I just, I can't see a situation in which he'll extend and I can't see a situation in which Levy will sell before then. I think you say... We're still going to get two more of Kane's best years. I mean, he's show at the moment. He's showing absolutely no sign of getting worse. You get two more years, and then in the summer of won't it be twenty twenty four? He goes uh, as he's about to. What would he be then? Thirty one. So, so he'll be about yeah. So he'll so he'll be just about to turn thirty one. Yeah, he'll be thirty at, at the end of June, and and you know, and if you're Kane. You put down signing if if we're assuming you know because we don't know what will happen in the next two years. But if say he has another two years, much like the previous few, where they've just been battling for a top four spot, you know, then I think if you're him, you say, okay, well, I leave. I've probably broken the club's goal scoring record. Uh, I leave a legend, and I still hopefully have a few years to go and win all the trophies that I feel I should have won. Like you know, we talked about you know James has often used the example of Teddy Sheringham, who left Spurs at a similar age to what Kane would be at the end of his contract, went and won the lot and then came back to Spurs. So maybe Kane will do something similar. How old was Robin Van Persie when he left, he left Arsenal for Man United? Mm, 28? 2012, Something 29? Like so he left in 20, he was born in 80, somewhere, yeah, tw- he turned, he's 28 about to turn 29. So slightly younger, but not a radically different profile of player. Obviously Kane's achieved more in his 20s than Van Persie has. You know, he, he'd be an example of someone who that was a good sale. Well, for both, I guess that worked for both parties because he delivered Fergie that last league title and then is, and then fell off a cliff physically. Yeah. Um, obviously, we, you know, Kane hasn't, ha- you know, Van Persie really did have a lot of injury problems, you know, in a way that Kane hasn't. Well, let, let me end the podcast, if I may, on a, a more optimistic note for Spurs fans. I think Kane could easily sign a contract in December um, of this year because his lust for trophies will have been satisfied as as England captain he hoists the World Cup 
towards the preheated Qatari sky. <laughs> and he said, you know what? I've done this trophy thing now. It was a load of old nonsense anyway, made up by journalists. Um, let me sign for the club that I've played for all my life that I love. And that is um, a piece of optimism um, to end the podcast with. Thank you both very much uh, for guiding us through all of that. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, then you really should be. And you can sign up right now to read all of our articles on the Spurs, including Charlie's piece today, uh, marking a year since the sacking of Jose Mourinho. Of course, you'll also have access to everything else that's on the site. So just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for just £1 a month for the first six months. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. We'll be back on Thursday. Thank you all for listening. The Athletic.